News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn on Saturday talking with senior reporter for the city, Josefa Velasquez, who's in Brooklyn, about to head to Albany. Hello. Hey, Harry. How's it going? It's going. It's going. Thanks for joining (laughs) us. Thank you for having me. It's been a... um, a wild, exhausting, exciting, soul-crushing week. Ooh, and, and with more to come. So speaking speaking of exhausting, exciting, soul-crushing stretches, later in the show, you're going to be hearing from controller Scott Stringer, who spoke with uh, Professor Christina Greer and me earlier this week about his mayoral run. We asked all seven losing candidates for like a brief 10-minute or so conversation, uh, Stringer was the only one who found the time this week, so it became a longer conversation. And he says he wished that he had a James-style report into the allegations that uh, derailed his campaign. Cuomo, of course, did have a James investigation, Attorney General Tish James. And uh, while he's been hiding from the press since that was released, we saw him once in a pre-recorded video, straight to camera, no questions, that was, uh, uh, I thought, absurd and obscene. Um, his lawyers and surrogates are making clear that they're not happy with the AG's damning probe that found the accounts of 11 women, many of them on the state payroll, credible, uh, who say that the governor harassed and in at least one case assaulted them in the midst of what the report called a toxic work environment from the governor who happens to have signed the harassment law that was supposed to bring an end to such environments in New York. So with all that, Josefa, where do things stand now for Cuomo? Does he have any ways out of this mess? Like what's, and Phyllis in particular with the executive assistant who says that he groped her in the executive mansion, who filed criminal charges on Friday, and is going to be speaking with CBS and the Albany Times Union on Monday, and who Cuomo's lawyers and surrogates suggest is lying, like the governor's like, who dat? And with this uh, state trooper who we learned about from the James report, who maybe is still part of his protective detail after this, maybe not. Uh, his lawyer seemed confused uh, about what's happening there. So ever since the report dropped on Tuesday, uh, the governor has been sort of chomping at the bit to try to address these things publicly. There were you know, rumors that he was going to have a press conference on Wednesday that never materialized. And it's very clear that he's trying to make his case to the public. He thinks that, you know, if he does share what he calls his side of the story, that it might sway public opinion. But yesterday, for the first time, we heard from his lawyers. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people since that uh, press conference over Zoom, and it was just a re- resounding, what the hell was that? And really just shocking because the lawyer's arguments seemed to hang on you know, very minute technicalities and really only addressed one of the 11 uh, women or two. Yeah, I guess Lindsay Boyland. Um, but it all focused on the date of the alleged incident with the executive assistant number one, which they said occurred on November 16th, a day that the governor was incredibly busy and could not be alone 
with this unnamed assistant um, and that there were people at the governor's mansion. But the report from the attorney general's office says that the executive assistant never said that it occurred on November 16th, just around that time. She's also told the Times Union it did not occur on November 16th, but around that time, because I had to photograph a document and this is a timestamp on the document. But the lawyers say that there is no other visitor logs that indicate that she was at the residence at that point. Um, but it was a really sort of sparse argument from the lawyers that, you know, the governor has not, does not know this person, that they are being treated unfairly because they did not get a heads up that the report was coming out. I mean, I don't know of many investigations where people are told ahead of time, hey, by the way, like, where here's the indictment against you. You want to respond to it ahead of time? Uh, that's not a thing that happens normally, um, especially when it's the governor himself that called for this investigation. We should be pointing that out, that this did not, you know, occur out of the ether. He authorized the attorney general's investigation back in March, and now this is the fruit of the labors. He, his hand was forced there after he tried to handpick his own investigator and uh, people collectively rose up and were like, oh, no. Right. And then we've seen this happen before where Andrew Cuomo does these investigations himself and has a, you know, has his hand on the scale the entire time. So, you know, can you effectively investigate yourself? No, of course not. So, so watching James report on nursing home deaths in New York earlier this year and now on uh, harassment inside involving the governor, you know, it is, it is bringing me back to uh, Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, who, who knows some of these moves, uh, looking into uh, all sorts of matters, uh, some of them involving state troopers again, which seems to be quite the theme. Uh, and Elliot Spitzer, uh, and, and really helping to damage him before other other issues involving uh, paying for prostitution brought him, uh, forced him to resign. Uh, I, I do wonder if Cuomo is chomping at the bit to get his his side out there. As you mentioned, his surrogates don't seem to have been especially successful today. I, I also thought the lawyers were uh, pretty unimpressive. Uh, what's What's holding him back uh, um, at this point? He's got a powerful uh, microphone and platform if he wants to use it. I think there's been a lot of senior aides who were involved in all of this who have been telling him, like, take take it easy, take a step back. We need to be more careful about this because you could harm your argument even more by coming out swinging at this point. I mean, what we saw in the attorney general's report was just how carefully crafted his initial apology was in which he was holding back tears and trying to show himself as this very empathetic character. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, you had, you know, his top aides and a group of advisors saying, you know, the spin is emotional, you know, apologetic, sounding contrite and you have these like real-time emails from advisors saying he's not sounding contrite rein it back in rein it back in 
So this is a governor who has been involved in politics his entire life. Like, that's the thing that people, I think, maybe don't realize is that he was a teenager when his father was governor. He worked for his father's campaign. He's been involved in state politics. He is a creature of Albany. And really, like, what does Andrew Cuomo do? What is he capable of outside of the political sphere? He doesn't have a home aside from the Albany residents. What what else could he possibly do outside of being involved in politics? So he's going to fight for his life here. When he was trying to present himself as this kindly older gentleman who was only deeply concerned with all of these generally much younger women when he pressed them about their sex lives, platonically, of course, um, was this overlapping with, uh, with, with with some of his attempts to push back indirectly at these women, to have his administration put out Lindsey Boylan's personnel file, for instance, and talk to reporters about her and about others in a way that, that didn't directly have his fingerprints there? So was this a two-track strategy, and is that continuing, potentially? Oh, totally. I mean, yesterday we saw one of his lawyers try to say, you know, this is a man who's been involved in public politics and public life for 40 years. He is 63 years old, trying to paint him as like, you know, this elderly figure when we all know, you know, Andrew Cuomo is not that he's privately telling aides, you know, how many pushups can you do, which is very sort of frat boy in college mentality. Um, And they're trying to recast Andrew Cuomo as the victim in this situation, that somehow this group of women are conspiring against him. You know, they've tried to say that Lindsey Boylan was a Republican plant at some point and that she came out with these allegations to boost her uh, campaign. I think she was running for Manhattan Borough president. Is that right? Um, Which I don't think that played a role in the campaign. As if that invalidates every other, as you mentioned, they only bring up two of the 11. And the idea is if Boylan's the original sin, then you could take this group or uh, I believe his preferred term is coven of women and uh, and say, you know, well, well, this means none of them are to be trusted. Right. Because they're like all looped around this giant pot stewing and you know, these witches in the woods somewhere trying to come up with Andrew Cuomo's demise. Um, And it's quite frankly insane. I mean, we're talking about women who are very early in their careers at some, for some of them, at least the ones that we know about, these are, you know, entry level, somewhat entry level positions. Um, And even the state trooper, which is one of the uh, most jarring, uh, instances in the report, they did not, the lawyers did not talk about that yesterday. They were specifically asked about it and they demurred and said, you know, the governor will be talking about that soon. And she had less than three years on the job, right? Right. So he had to, and you need three years to join the protective detail. And he said, I didn't know about that or his lawyers did, but also I was just deeply concerned with, uh, with increasing diversity. And, you know, her lawyer said she looked at Cuomo in the eye and that's when he knew she was the one to join his protective detail. I mean, it was really, oh my. Um, so, you know, reading the report, what, like what really killed me, and, and a bunch of these women have 
spoken about this previously. I mean, the report mostly actually just backed up accounts that had already been out there. And of course, the assembly could have been moving on much more quickly prior to this point. Um, but, but these women are like, this, this was my dream job. And, 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 and suddenly I was, I was just trapped, uh, you know, by this guy and this circumstance. Uh, there's a sort of cruelty to that with people, I think, at the start of their careers who, who don't want to uh, shake everything up. Yeah, no, I sort of, I know what you're saying. I mean, it has this chilling effect on not just women, but other people who are in entry-level positions or earlier on in their career in the SOPs. I mean, you're working for a Democratic governor of New York, a major Democratic player in national politics at the, arguably the pinnacle of his career during the COVID pandemic. And you have to put up with this toxic workplace where loyalty is valued above all else. And the administration has been painting it as, you know, this is a high pressure situation. Some people are just not cut out for it. And that, I think, may have soured a lot of people's interest in public service. Who knows how many people we've lost into the private sector because you know, they didn't think they could, quote unquote, cut it in this industry, when really this is not the norm. And I'm sure this has derailed a lot of these women's careers and their day-to-day lives right now uh, in, in ways we may not you know, entirely be able to see. Uh, Joseph, speaking of careers, last week was a, was a news avalanche. Um, are we looking at the imminent end of Andrew Cuomo's career here? And what are you expecting out of lawmakers next week and out of the governor? And how could this proceed if he wants to fight and if he does not uh, from here? I mean, it seems like this is the end of Andrew Cuomo, whether he likes it or not. The state legislature is trying to move as quickly as possible towards impeachment. But as I've mentioned, you know, several times to several people, this is only the first time in modern history that an impeachment would occur. The only other time it's ever happened was in 1913. The state constitution does not lay out, you know, guidelines for what is an impeachable offense. So really, the legislature is sort of grappling with the fact that they know Andrew Cuomo. They've been around Andrew Cuomo. They know Andrew Cuomo is a smart guy with a ton of money. I mean, I think he has like $18 million still in his campaign trust um, that can outmaneuver them. So the reason that this is taking a little bit longer than some people would have hoped for is that they want to lock in their case and their argument and make it as solid as humanly possible so Andrew Cuomo does not find a crack to wiggle through. And what that means is that the Assembly has impaneled a their own investigation that has been sort of running parallel with the Attorney General's that's not just looking into the sexual harassment complaints, but also into whether or not his administration covered up nursing home deaths at the peak of the pandemic, the governor's $5.1 million book deal, um, the construction of the Tappan Zee Bridge, but the assembly is moving uh, quickly to try to wrap that up. And then theoretically, you know, we're talking on Saturday, on Monday, the assembly judiciary committee uh, is meeting and the governor has until Friday the 13th to come up with his um, arguments and any uh, files that 
they might have to send over to the committee itself. So once the committee gets that, they give the assembly the recommendation, it's off to the races. The second that the assembly takes a vote to pass the impeachment resolution, which they have the votes for, the governor is immediately removed from office and the lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, becomes the acting governor. And, you know, at that point, we don't know what's going to happen. Like this, you know, I've heard from, you know, a few people that who have said Andrew Cuomo not resigning has is going to be great for Democrats in New York state because they're all moving to impeach. There's going to be no argument against it. So and every single Republican and Democrat, if they want a political future in the state, is going to vote to impeach the governor because Otherwise, they'll just be primaried from the left and from the right. So I don't think there's any allies left for him in the state legislature. You know, very few, maybe in the state alone. Last fast question. How likely is he to drag a few old enemies or former allies down with him on the way out? I mean, if there is a trial in the Senate to impeach him, Andrew Cuomo is going to be able to call witnesses and show have testimony, show evidence. This is a spiteful man we're talking about. He is going to drag every single person down with him. He is going to salt the earth and torch the fields. Andrew Cuomo is not going to go out lightly into the night he is going to make sure that there is an absolute war path for him. I think that's where people might be a little bit scared because he's been around for so long. Like he knows where some of these skeletons are hiding and he's not a shy guy. He's going to take down everyone with him. Ooh. Well, as a, <laughs> Cuomo's old enemy, Preet Bharara, often says, stay tuned. Josefa, thank you again for uh, for taking the time. Good luck next week in Albany, and uh, I hope we'll talk again soon. Yeah, it's going to be um, a wild time, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. Hello, Controller Scott Stringer. Thank you for uh, joining us again. Great to be here. We, we have... We have a few questions we'd like to ask. Let's start with what's next uh, for you starting next year? And uh, what are you looking ahead to uh, for New York City at this moment of uh, change and uncertainty here in Albany? Well, first and foremost, uh, I have a job to do. Uh, and I'm not kidding. I mean, we have still over five months to serve as controller. We have a lot of audits, a lot of investigations that are still coming. Uh, we're still looking at what went right and what went wrong with the COVID pandemic. And so I'm really hunkered down doing the controller work. And then, look, I'm excited to see what comes next uh, at the beginning of the year. I don't have any specific plans, except I want to be a voice for the people in the city in whatever capacity. And I'll find my way to do that. It's sort of ingrained in me uh, since I was very young, and that's not going to change. 
But in terms of the city, I think we have a lot of things coming our way, some good and some real challenging. We have a budget that's still going to be challenging. We have a pandemic that we seem to be doing better with, but every different variant and every different strategy comes new challenges. And we're going to have a whole new government, uh, a new mayor, a new controller, a whole new city council. And that will come with a breath of fresh air and new priorities and excitement, but it will also come with uh, a new, you know, a new set of folks who are just dipping their toes into government. And there will be some teaching moments and learning moments, but I do think uh, change is in the air and I think that's exciting. So looking at how this election turned out and Eric Adams slim margin of victory after the ranked choice voting part. And having talked with you previously about your vision for New York and and the path you saw going forward, I'm inclined more so than when we, when I first heard you speak about it, to think that that, that you had a, a a pretty clear path uh, that was interrupted by the allegations um, one and then a second one against you. Uh, is that your sense of how this election played out? Obviously, you only run it once, and there are always the circumstances. Look, the uh, I think it's pretty clear to people that, uh, you know, I got derailed in a very unfortunate, uncorroborated set of circumstances. But look, that's politics, and you don't look back on how you lose. The real challenge is how you get up and make a contribution. You know, Harry, I always told you I had a path, and I think the votes, once it was clear that I wasn't going to be able to win. My votes went in other directions, and that happens all the time. Um, I do feel that as I go around the city and go to meetings and do my work as controller, I think a lot of people, you know, wish uh, that they were able to see a better outcome. And I'm very, you know, I'm very excited about that. And uh, there's a lot to go forward, and I'm, I'm there to do it. You can't, you know, you can't always predict how elections are going to turn out, and you can't always predict uh, what may happen to you. When the campaign started, my wife and I knew what we were getting into. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, I have a strong record of serving the city for 30 years. We ran a terrific positive campaign. We, we built a coalition uh, that was unprecedented. And I do think uh, it's a coalition and a group of people who will stay with me as we work with Eric Adams to make sure that he can be the best mayor for our city. So I, I want to go back to something you said uh, Scott, because you have been a public servant for 30 years, and that was something that we always talked about on the podcast. And what do you do now? I mean, this is your, essentially your entire adult life, you've been serving the citizens of New York City. So what does the path look like? Do you still want to run for something else in the future? I know everyone says, oh, we need to sort of, you know, take some time and evaluate, and I've got kids and the family, yada, yada. But I mean, it's clearly in your blood. Literally, it's in your DNA. We know who your family is. So where do we go? Look, I I, I think, uh, you know, kids are a big issue, believe it. I mean, (laughs) no, I'm not making light of it. I mean, you know, my wife and I went through a very difficult campaign. Um, You know, I'm spending as much time as possible you know, with the kids. And, and, you know, that is like the sort of the political cliche. cliche. But for me, it it actually is very important that I do that now over the summer. Mm -hmm. But look, it is in my blood. 
New York City is in my blood. Uh, this state is in my blood, you know, from assembly to borough president to controller. Uh, I've had the experience of a lifetime serving this city. I have zero regrets about the good times or the bad times. That's what public service is all about. But Christina, make no mistake, uh, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I said that on primary night. Uh, the days ahead are going to be participatory and coalition building. And I want to be very helpful to the new administration to make sure that we tackle issues of education and equity that just because you're not in the seat doesn't mean you don't have a voice and a role to play. And I'll be thinking about that in the coming months. Absolutely. I mean, and, and in uh, let's we're assuming it's an Adams administration. Where do you see yourself being most useful? I mean, you've mentioned education, obviously, you have the background as controller. Uh, and we know that Eric Adams has a lot of say, non-traditional politicos uh, who will be at the table with him and sort of some political elites that are accustomed to being at the head of the table will be asked to either scoot over or remove themselves and sit on the sidelines for a hot second. So where do you see yourself uh, working with Eric Adams? Look, I'm going to make sure that uh, when he asks for my opinion, I give it and I'll continue to try to champion the issues that I care about, like affordable housing, uh, like, uh, as we mentioned, education. And uh, we have to all have hands on deck. My, uh, you know, I will give him private advice if he seeks it, but I will say that I think the transition period will be critical for an Adams administration to really attract the best and the brightest people from a cross section of the city. And as Eric said, from around the country, I think this is a real opportunity for the next mayor to build an administration so that whatever the agenda he fully lays out becomes, it's gonna be it's gonna be with the capacity to get things done. I think Bill de Blasio's biggest failure was at the beginning of the administration, not fully bringing in uh, the capacity needed to make fundamental change. And that would be my advice to Eric. By the way, that's my advice to my successor, uh, Brad Lander. One of the reasons why we did well in, in the controls office, the best controls office in modern history, and the reason we were able to do fossil fuel divestment, the reason we were able to consolidate the five pension funds for eight years, hit our actuarial targets, grow the pension fund, and do all of the audits and investigation that were was really unprecedented. Uh, the reason I was able to do it, this is the secret. It wasn't me. It was my ability to attract people who could do this work. Yes, I led the vision part of it, but people have to understand that in government, it's who you bring in, the foundation you build. You know, And I could write three books about it. I don't think anyone would buy them, but I really believe that that is step one to governing 101. And that's gonna be my advice to the controller, to the mayor. And that that is something I believe very strongly in. So, there's been some interesting news in Albany. You've probably caught a little about. Um, I noticed that that after Tish James put out her comprehensive report, Andrew Cuomo put out a, I thought, sort of ridiculous and offensive response one that is 82 pages, but 50 of them are photos of Andrew and other politicians hugging people and some screen grabs of tweets from uh, Lindsey Boylan, one of his accusers. I noticed in there that there is a picture of uh, Andrew's father, Mario, hugging your cousin, Bella Abzug. Um, and this got me thinking about 
your political experience this year and the governor's. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that something like a, a Tish Games report might have benefited you, uh, given the, the two allegations that came out over the course of the campaign. It, I wished and prayed for a Tish James report, and uh, I'm, I'm envious of it. And uh, I wish I was afforded that. It just, you know, in the heat of a campaign, that wasn't possible. But look, let me tell you about Tish James for a second. She did a thorough investigation. You know, women need to be heard on these allegations. And in the case of Andrew Cuomo, there were a lot of women who needed to be heard, state employees that he was supervising. And one of the things that people say, which I believe is once allegations are made, allegations have to be uh, accounted for and investigated. And there has to be corroboration. This is how this is the, the backbone of our judicial system. Tish James stepped in and said, I'm going to give this an investigation. I'm going to go out and hire two independent lawyers who are greatly respected. I'm going to hear witnesses. I'm not going to pass judgment. I'm going to do it the right way. I believe that this is the template, uh, not just for what's happening with the governor, but what happens to people who are innocent, people who are guilty, we need to have this kind of template put in place. And uh, I'm very proud of uh, the Attorney General because I think she did this with great honor and consistency, and we should be proud of her work. And this is something I wish I was afforded. But again, you don't no crying over spilled milk. You, you get knocked down, you get back up. People have been asking me how I feel about it. I just feel it's time to move on. But this is a very positive step for justice. And I believe the women who uh, step forward uh, should be honored. And clearly their stories have been corroborated by the attorney general. I think that's very powerful. Do you think that uh, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, who one of the big questions now is who he may take down with him on the way out? That photo display, for instance, had all these other prominent Democratic politicians in, in there who could not have been thrilled to be there. But I'm curious if you think that he may have been involved in any sense in the allegations that, that appeared against you, which which I know people in your orbit were speculating about after uh, after Jean Kim uh, first uh, came out with her uh, with her account. Harry, you know, you can spend your life bemoaning the circumstances around an election. You know, I've won a lot of great primary victories, as you know, but I've also lost a number of times. Uh, did I ever think I would lose in this horrific way? No. I do believe truth comes out and there's probably more to the st my story, but it's not something I think about every day. It comes out because you can't, you, you can't prevent things like this from coming out. And so I'm not thinking about it. I'm as Dr. Greer asks, like what's the next step for how I can make a contribution. Uh, that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, I don't have any concrete plans, but I'm not going back and forth over this. And by the way, the, amount of people who ranked me, uh, the people, labor unions who stayed with me and fought for me, from my mentor, Jerry Nadler, to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, who ranked me in this process. I have a lot to be thankful for and the support that I have, uh, you know, and the polling I've seen with my positives. I'm, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for. I really do. And understanding that you're saying this is not something you're looking back on too often. 
My last question. Although is, I got to tell you something, everyone, every show I come on, they say they're not going to talk about it. They can't, you know, but, but I understand, you know, I got to go through the, the questions and I'm happy to do it, especially uh, with, with you guys. Thank, thank, thank you. And, and, and for coming on. Um, my, my last one here is if you have any regrets with Jane Kim and with Teresa Logan about how you handled your interactions with them at the time and also over the course of, of this election and them coming forward. Because I know the Working Families Party, for instance, said this was it, – it, they, they weren't sure about what you did, but you weren't acknowledging things about the things you were saying you didn't do and that that was why they had to step away from you. I think that's not true. Um, I think it's a little bit nonsense. Uh, but look, I've answered these questions a hundred times. Uh, responsible newspaper reporters have looked into these uh, this set of circumstances. I refer you to Ben Smith's piece in the New York Times, and I refer. You said you're going to run for governor, I believe, or you joked about running for governor in that piece. Why do you? Think, but, but, why do you think that's a joke? Go on. Go on. Are you, are you do you need about, to make an announcement here on FAQ? I, I, no, but I, but but I, I wasn't laughing when I said it. But the point is, if you look at Ben's article, I think it was very compelling, uh, and uh, I'm glad he did that. You know, uh, he's a very respected media reporter, and uh, we go from there. But look, I'll answer these questions, you know. But they're the same answers. I answered every single question. I I showed what we could do. I'm proud of the campaign that, that, that we ran. I'm proud of the way we discuss these issues. I'm still proud of the way I discuss these issues. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, uh, I do not have the opportunity of a Tish James uh, independent investigation. And so all I can do is talk about 20, 30 years ago when, I mean, let's just remember 20, 30, years ago. I mean, we could go back to kindergarten. Uh, I think there has to be a better way to adjudicate this in the heat of a campaign when you had somebody who had a very good chance to be mayor. And I think we have to think about, you know, all of our roles in this, because we also want to make sure good people have an opportunity to run. What would a better way to adjudicate this be going forward? Because I honestly don't know the answer, and I can see exactly this happening again. Harry, go write a column. That's a way to help. You know, write a column, write one of those big columns in the Daily News and talk about it. It's not my response. You know, I can't keep, you know, I can't do this for the whole world. That's, that's with great respect to you. That's your job to see if there's a better way. You know, um, I'll be interviewed. Uh, but I do think we want to get as many people elected to office who are good people. Uh, we want to make sure that people have a space to step up and say whatever they want. In the case of Governor Cuomo, these were courageous women who stepped up. And we had an attorney general who did not back down, who said, we're going to look at all the corroborative evidence. We're going to look at witnesses, 179 witnesses, thousands and thousands of emails, uh, not going back 20, 30 years, but simply in this moment in time. She met the standard of justice and fairness both to the women and to the governor. And that's very important because everyone deserves a day in court. We have seen too many people uh, from the, from the, you know, from people who were innocent, who ended up going to jail. I have personal experience as controller working with people who were innocent. Uh, and then we have people like in the case of Cuomo who were in a hostile workplace, who were 
who, who had to endure terrible things. And there was an investigation that brought that out. I think Tish James deserves tremendous credit for it. So not to bring in petty politics, but, you know, there are a lot of women that you supported in their early careers and they, they, they moved away from you very quickly. I would say in less than 24 hours uh, of the, the first accusations. So where do you go from there as far as building relationships with, I mean, you were a mentor to quite a few people. Are you a little more reticent to do that? Or is that just a lesson learned and you move forward and you'll still be a somewhat elder statesman? I don't know if you're going to run for governor. Maybe you need to make an announcement on this podcast Uh, or some sort of elected office. But where does that, I think that to me was one of the most striking parts of the narrative when everything was was going on in the mayor's race, Uh, how people that you had really helped establish foundation moved away quite quickly. Again, you know, I could look at a couple of people who just walked away for their own reasons, but then I can look at the people who stayed and fought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had thousands and thousands of union members, men and women who stayed with me. We had from Randy Weingarten to Ruth Messenger to some of the great feminists in this city stay with me. We had 300 women sign a letter and saying, hey, what about due process? And we know his record. So I can't worry about the few who, for whatever their motives or their own personal agendas moved away. That's for them to answer on your show. Mm. Uh, I do know that you know one of them sent me a text of her voting on primary day, You know, someone who walked away, who voted for number one, and remember, every one of them who walked away made a determination that I was the best candidate to be mayor. Uh, I wish there was a corroboration and due process. I wish there was a system in place like uh, was afforded under Tish James. But again, if you look at the glass half empty and look at a few people who walked away and then you then start adding up all the people who endorsed after I was no longer, to be honest, a viable candidate for mayor. Uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez ranks me knowing I have no chance to win, but knowing that uh, she believed in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry Nadler, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, certainly knows right from wrong. He investigated the President of the United States, brought articles of impeachment. He stayed with me, never flinching. Linda Rosenthal, and then the list goes on and on and on. So why should I give the ones that walked away, yeah. you know, the oxygen. Why don't we talk about all the ones who talked about fairness and due process and people who are feminist icons who also said we need to have full investigation. I'm very optimistic that the winds of what's right and wrong will be found in the balance. And I do think it starts with Tish James and what she was able to do with her independent investigation. Doctor, I'm very... You know, I'm very opt- I'm very optimistic. I know people mm-hmm. say, well, you got knocked down. People call me up saying what happened to you was unbelievable. And I just am like, you know what? I've lost elections before. Now let's go fight on the issues I care about. So so speaking of wrongful convictions, <laughs> you did a 13-year bid in Albany. If I look at governors, we had uh, Spitzer, who resigned, Patterson, who came in, and gave a press conference saying 
yes, I've fooled around on my wife with my staff, but, but she did it first, and Andrew Cuomo. So when you say Tish James is the start of something, the question I have to ask, and you, you've been up there, you, you know the, the deal there is why this seems to keep repeating. And I haven't got into Vito Lopez or Eric Schneiderman or lots of others, what, why there seems to be such a uh, perennial and difficult to uproot culture of harassment and abuse toward women in New York State democratic politics. I, I think that absolute power corrupts. Um, I think we must enter a moment when politicians, especially men, are held to the highest standard. Uh, again, we need to make sure that, as in the case of the employees of the governor, remember these are people who worked for him, uh, they did not, they were not afforded a safe space to come forward and they did anyway. And yes, I come back to the attorney general's investigation because that investigation proves that justice will be served. And I think that's very significant, Harry. I mean, look, Albany is a, is a difficult place to serve. Uh, I've, you know, I was there for 13 years and brought reform to the chamber. I can tell you my own, you know, challenges there, uh, but there definitely has to be more change and whoever is the governor next has to come with a real reform-minded agenda as well as in the two houses of the legislature. And look, I, you know, Dr. Greer said, you know, am I going to be shy about endorsing, you know, the next generation of leadership? And I just want to say to both of you, hell no, I'm going to endorse. I'm going to find reform-minded uh, young candidates to support because they're the future. They're the ones that are going to make, you know, make a, a difference. And I think the ones that will come in 2022 and 2024 will be the ones who challenge the status quo. And it's going to be an exciting moment. We see that with the new council members who I'm starting to meet. I didn't really get a chance to you know, meet them. But you look at, you know, a Chris Marte and, you know, who's going to represent Lower Manhattan. who's just just a people's candidate took on, you know, all the machines and ended up winning. I was with him yesterday. I have a lot of hope for uh, for the next generation and I'm going to participate if they'll have me, you know, sometimes they don't want to see <laughs> the around, right. But, you know, I'm going to still, you know, even if they just have me giving out literature on the corner, it is in my DNA. I can't, I've been doing it since I was 12. Right. So I can't stop now. I've got a question. Who do you miss the most from the trail? You all were together a lot, but I call you like the big eight. Who do I miss the most? Um, you know, they all had, they were all special in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> all of the, I said that about my students. They're all special. <laughs> well, they're all special. You know? uh, there was always, there was something about Sean Donovan. I don't know. that. <laughs> it, it was just, it was a, you know, it was, it was a great, ex, you know, it was a great experience. And uh, there was a lot of, for me, a lot of good moments. I mean, the people you meet, the places you get to go in the city, the diversity in the city you could be, you know, one day getting endorsed by, you know, a Muslim group, the next day a Jewish group, the next day an African-American group. But in the, 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 the diversity for a kid who grew up in this town and then to be able to travel it through the lens of possibly becoming mayor is really a once in a lifetime, you know, opportunity. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, as, as I said to my wife, 
you know, at the beginning of it, I said, oh, come on, we survived Spitzer, this race will be easy. And in the middle of it, we're both like, this is getting complicated, you know? But, but it's worth it because it's an experience you take for the, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, and, uh, you know, my favorite story was when we were doing the TV commercials, we had uh, our great uh, f- film guy come in and he wanted to film the children waking up for real in the morning. Right. And now this has is he ever met children working up for real in the morning? You no, know, he, you know, he has no kids and he <laughs> came in to my eight year old and, and nine year old and six in the morning. We're all there. The light gets turned on and my little guy sees these cameras and he comes out in his pajamas and he's looking at daddy making pancakes and he goes, dad, I got to talk to you. I said, Miles, just, just let's get through this. He goes, dad, I got to talk to you right now. I go, okay, Miles, what's going on? He goes, WTF. <laughs> like, oh my God. You can't make that up in a right. campaign diary. Right. <laughs> you still didn't answer my question, so I'll circle back another time. Who did you miss the most? But go ahead, Harry. Here, here, here's an easy closing one. It's hypothetical, but weed is legal now, so we can uh, we can get deep. Uh-huh. You were talking about going all around the city, and you and the other candidates did that. But except for Andrew Yang, who I think irresponsibly started off that way and ended up, um, you know, having to isolate himself twice with possible exposure and then getting the, the virus. How different could this race have been, do you think, if uh, it wasn't so much of it wasn't being held over Zoom a, and everyone had been out more? Look, I, I, I thought that Andrew Yang, you know, I mean, so much of that campaign was about being the clown, but I do think he was irresponsible uh, in how he just went out there. Um, but look, Zoom had an impact. I mean, I I had envisioned a campaign that was the way I always ran, which is at the subways and in the streets, and you know that one-on-one interaction because it also doesn't just help the people in the streets get to know you, but it feeds on whether you think your message and your relationship is going. And I found that was very tough uh, to do on Zoom. Um, and I think it it didn't have the, you know, the difference between the in-person debate and the Zoom debate, I think was kind of startling. Uh, I, think, I think you guys get a lot of credit for saying, look, we're going to have debates and forums and we're all going to participate whether you like it or not. And you, you did, I think the press play a big role in getting us into Zoom, as did all the community organizations. I mean, we were doing, you know, Zoomathons. I mean, I would just, you know, I would have dinner with the kids for 20 minutes, 10 minutes, and then I'd go into this makeshift, which I'm still in, this Zoom, you know, the Zoom office. We didn't have a headquarters. And I think it was really uh, the only way we could do this. I wish it had been different. Um, you know, in the Yang thing, there was this feeling that well, surprised me. A lot of the press was like, Andrew Yang, man in the streets, he's active, he's out there. And I'm just like, press people, this is not safe, right? Something's going to happen. And sure enough, you know, unfortunately, you know, thank God he was okay. But no one wants to see a colleague hit with COVID and, and family members put at risk. So hopefully we'll never have to campaign like this again. But this was definitely the COVID primary strategist had on the thing that really bothered me was your campaign and every other campaign implicitly said the only thing that's going to matter is the home stretch everyone saved their money for the home stretch 
there were all these exchanges that Chrissy and I and others in and around the press saw happen a dozen times, but that just kept getting redone uh, at the debates. I, I would think, for instance, of uh, Maya Wiley and Eric Adams going back and forth about stop and frisk. And they're actually repeating a conversation they'd had on six previous Zoom forums, mm-hmm. basically word for word. But all those were, were rehearsals, and it's not till the end, till people are watching on TV, until the ads are up. And by the way, the outside money now, with this generous campaign matching fund system, every candidate except Diane Morales had significant dark money, including yourself, uh, or half dark. You, you, and union money is not me. dark money. Let's make that distinction. Daddy's okay. money and powerful real estate interest money and billionaire money, Harry, that is dark money. That has to be column number two for you. A lot of money, though, yes. getting spent uh, outside of the campaign, the matching fund system, which is more generous because of Ray McGuire mm-hmm. uh, and his personal spending. Um, and, and everyone seemed to have the plan that the only thing that's going to matter is the last month. And with this moved up to June for the first time, I found this personally like distressing. The, the, that whoever sort of catches that one moment was in. All these strategists I talked to were, were pretty open about looking at it that way. And, and you know, I, you're, you're, you're a principal, but you think about strategy. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. And, by the way, thank you again for just taking all this no, no. time and stepping up and joining us. I, I, I really I, – I love, I love FAQ. I, I, sorry, that's a secret. Um, I, I would come on more. Uh, oh, I disagree with you. I actually think that mayoral elections and most elections are determined in the last few weeks. But understand, and this is true in 1970, going back to the 1977 mayoralty, going back to Koch Cuomo 82, all the great races. By the way, Spitzer Stringer, the one that, you know, was my slugfest. I mean, that race, I mean, we didn't come on until the last four days. We were going to, if the race is held a week earlier, we lose. But this is the way it's always been. What I think gets lost was all the campaigns had to build foundationally. And like running for president, when it starts in the cornfields in Iowa and it starts in New Hampshire, I don't think you saw a lot of the background work that all the candidates was doing, you know, honing message. You know, Eric Adams had a very consistent message. To his credit, that took a lot of discipline in the early days. You know, the the crime issue sort of came to him, but he was there to claim that mantra because he had determined that was his priority. And I would just tell you, in terms of our campaign, before derailment, we were on, we, we had already gone up on television April 27th, eight weeks or nine weeks before the election. So we were not waiting to the, our strategy was don't wait to the last three weeks, build on the momentum, and then get an opportunity before the clutter started to introduce me. You know, we wanted to show that, you know, I was, that I had charisma because you all think I don't. We wanted to remind people of, you know, my record. We wanted, you know, we had things that we had to get across about me that we didn't wait for. So I don't agree. I think campaigns are about building a foundation, raising money. And by the way, some of the candidates who came in later than Eric and I, I mean, the campaign finance system did work in the sense, yes, there was dark money and there was also good money. But you know, there were candidates who would not have been viable but for a robust campaign finance system because they came in, you know, they didn't hold elective office. So they didn't have the same advantages, say, an Eric or myself had. And we able they were able to raise basically a whole lot of money because that's what the system is supposed to do, level the playing field. So I kind of feel 
that that this was a typical campaign with a lot more money, but a lot more opportunity for the candidates to actually have resources. Nobody who ran strong, no one can claim that they lost the election because they didn't have resources. In my, in my view. Adams did outspend Garcia and Wiley combined. And mm-hmm. both of them, I think, were hamstrung. Possibly there's a gender element to this, possibly a first-time candidate element, and not being able to match that. And what ended up, after the ranked choice counting, being a very close race, which brings me back to well, the thought that you, you really had a clear path with, with, with your position and your resources, uh, if, if not for the, uh, the, the accusations against you that derailed things. No, when the uncorroborated accusations came, it did derail me. I wish there had been an opportunity to address it in that here and now. The circumstances are pretty clear what happened. But again, people win and lose elections for a variety of reasons. You know, I had a very progressive perspective during the campaign. Would that have been what people wanted ultimately? I don't know. We could argue that. I don't think it's ever, you know. Like $5 million to get 10,000 votes, 15,000 votes to get past Catherine to get into a runoff with, with, with Adams. Like, like the, he just had much, much more money to spend, you know, and get marginal value out of it. Yes, but you could also you could also then look at the glass half full on, on her side, which is if there was no mm-hmm. campaign finance program, she probably finishes eighth. You know, she wouldn't have the resources to do anything. So, you know, it's not, listen, it's not perfect. I railed against the billionaires who were funding this race. I was the candidate that said, it was wrong to have these million dollar contributions. We have not yet come to terms with how to regulate this. There's more work to be done on campaign finance. But I think by and large, this is a very successful campaign finance program. It gave candidates around the city the opportunity to get their message out. And while there was outside expenditures, when you have a core base where you know, regardless of who supports you, uh, they can win. You know, it's funny, I was talking to Chris Marte, you know, who wasn't supported by the Rebney developers, wasn't supported by the Work Families Party, wasn't supported by labor, wasn't supported by anybody but the people in the district against the establishment. And he won because in part he had enough resources to run his race. And that's something I think is important. Hmm. Well, I want to say thank you uh, for always, A, coming on FAQ NYC and talking to us, but B, and we've, Harry and I have said this time and time again on the podcast, you know, we don't, we don't run for office. We're not politicians. But the, the amount of courage and dedication and loyalty to the city that it takes is really remarkable. And we, you know, we would be nowhere without public servants and we'd be nowhere without people who put themselves and their families um, in a position to to serve the citizens of New York City and New York State. So we really appreciate you and your colleagues for, for giving us a, a great campaign season. I mean, obviously, I would say almost all of you really care deeply about this city and really want to to figure out how we can make it better, especially for marginalized communities. Um, so we appreciate you always taking the time, especially during the campaign season, to come and check in with us and, and talk to us about uh, your vision for the city. And hopefully you'll continue to do so uh, in your capacity, either as a civilian or as a future candidate. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for calling it the way you see it. That's why I enjoy this podcast. And you too, Harry. I always feel that you can come in and and you know and get to the nook and cranny of what's real life out there. So I hope to get on from time to time to FAQ. But I'm going to be a devoted listener. So thank you both. I appreciate it. And I knew this wasn't going to be no ten minutes when the three of us get together, right? Did you say ten minutes, Harry? 
I said 10 or 15. Oh, Lord. Yeah, he said, <laughs> no, no, he didn't say 15. He goes, oh, everyone's getting 10 minutes. He did say, if Scott wants, if Scott wants to talk for a couple of more minutes, how, how many did we do? We're at 42, but I'll tell you, part of that is seven candidates. <laughs> and guess who we talked to this week? We're, you. We've had a few others who said maybe later in the summer and, and so on. So so we remember we remember who comes on during the election and who comes on after That's the election right. when it's maybe not as much fun. That's and right. we appreciate well, it. I pr- and I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great summer. Thank you. You too, Scott. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Journalists, Artists, and Others. Find us at thebrick.house on your interwebs. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty and Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests, Josefa Velasquez of The City and controller Scott Stringer. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and mastered this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Be kind, be cool, be safe, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye.